This is episode 524 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Sometimes when we sin, the grief and sorrow and guilt is so great that we promise, we even vow to God that we will never sin in that way again, and we're totally serious. And often, for a while, things go pretty good until we sin in the same way once again. And then the guilt comes flooding in, not just for the sin, but for not being able to keep our promise or vow to the Father. And the second time we go to him and ask for forgiveness, we feel ashamed, wondering how much longer God will continue to forgive the same stupid sin we seem powerless to get victory from. And it feels even worse when we go to him the fifth time or the 11th time, or the 20th time, asking for forgiveness again and again. It almost feels like we're taking advantage of God's mercy and grace. And then we wonder, is there a limit to the grace of God? Can I sin so much and so often that his mercy runs dry for me? How long does God's mercy endure? And where can I go in scripture to see that truth for myself in black and white? Today, we will look at Psalm 136 and discover the depth of his mercy and his grace that endures not just for a season, but forever as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, over the last uh, year or so, especially on Tuesday night, I've been trying to uh, encourage us to not really get behind the scriptures, but to get in the scriptures when we're actually studying them. And we talked about just your imagination. We talked about, for example, when you're looking at the gospel accounts and Jesus is walking down the road and all of a sudden this man, this rich young ruler comes up to him and asks him a question. It's this dialogue that takes place to just, if you were watching on television, it would be somebody else's interpretation of what that looked like. They would choose the road. They would choose the time of day. They would choose the clothes that the guy was wearing. They would choose how big the crowds were. But when we read the passages, especially the black print, we uh, have a tendency of doing the same thing in our own mind. And so as you're studying those and you're asking the Lord to maybe, what was it like if I was there? What was it like if If I actually witnessed this, what would their expressions be like? What would I be feeling? What are they feeling? And as you begin to practice that more, what happens is the word of God becomes more alive to you. There's more senses than just your mind and your spirit that are associated with it. You you have this um, vision. You have, you know, what you're hearing and tasting and smelling. And what it does, it just like adds more foliage to the tree of God's word. We're not taking away from God's word. We're not adding to it. We don't put words in Jesus's mouth, but it's it's amazing when you're able to experience God that way. And so one of the questions we always ask is, can you imagine what it was like? Can you imagine? We'll, We'll take a situation like this one, the guilt that David had with Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 mighty men, a friend of his, who has sworn allegiance to David, and his wife, this young woman named Bathsheba. Can you imagine, imagine the guilt he would have had? What if it was you? What if 
David was your best friend or you actually fell into the same sin that David did? What would you feel like on the inside? How much would it crush you? Would, would you even be able to talk to your friends about it? Would you have everywhere you went, would you feel like there was just gloom cloud hanging over you of guilt? What would it be like? The sin we're going to be talking about is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You don't have to turn to it. We all know it. David, when he should be out with the generals in war, wasn't. Um, Joab was out there, and he's fighting with the armies of Israel. Uriah the Hittite happened to be out there also. He, David, was in his uh, palace. He was walking around one night, happened to glance over one of, the, one of the, maybe the retaining walls, and he sees this woman bathing herself. And he was drawn to that naturally. He sees it. He realized he was, it was sin. He didn't turn away from it. And he couldn't get this woman out of his mind. And so he actually asked some of his servants, who was that woman that was right out there that was, was bathing herself that uh, I was looking at? Who is that? Oh, don't you know who that is? That's the wife of one of your friends. That's the wife of Uriah. Uriah is out serving and risking his life for your kingdom, and that's his wife. You should be ashamed to even ask that. You should already know, but ashamed to have even looked at her. But that's not what David did. David said, I, I want that woman. Bring that woman to me. Of course, uh, they had a committed adultery. They had an affair, affair. She became pregnant. She sent word to him, the gig is up. I am now pregnant. What are we going to do? He could have confessed his sin. He could have called Uriah in. He could have fallen on his face before the Lord and God would have forgiven, but he didn't. Instead, what he did, he called Uriah back from uh, the battlefront and he said, you know what I'll do? I'll get Uriah to go spend time with his wife. And then when she, she, they just, everybody discovers she's pregnant, he'll naturally think it's his child. But Uriah refused to do that. How can I go in and spend time with my wife when my brothers and my countrymen are out there serving in tents? I won't do it. Twice David tried to get him to do it. The second time he even got him drunk. I get him so drunk he won't even think about his loyalty to me or his loyalty to his friends and Uriah refused. Yet David trusted Uriah so much that he wrote basically his execution orders on a scroll, handed it to him, and knowing he wouldn't read it, and go back and give it to uh, the commander of the forces at that time, and Uriah did. And the idea was, we're going to go up to the, the, the big wall of the enemy, where you're going to get hit by arrows and everything, and right in the heat of the battle, I want all the men to pull away, and Uriah would be left exposed, and he would die. And that's exactly what happened. So Uriah died. David took Bathsheba in as his wife. The baby was born. Everybody, uh, David thought everything was covered. Until this man named Nathan came. Nathan the prophet came. And he came to see David and he told David a story about this really selfish man who had all these sheep and a poor man who only had one sheep. And the selfish man, of course, had a friend coming to eat with him. So instead of taking one of his sheep to butcher for the friend, he took this poor man's sheep, the only possession that he had, and used it for his own selfish purposes. And David was incensed, incensed. That man should surely die. Here's what he needs to do. He will have to pay back fourfold and all that kind of stuff. And you know the story. Nathan stuck his bony finger in David's face and says, you are the man. 
Wow, my worst nightmares materialized. You are the man. We're not talking about a sheep that this guy has. We're talking about the wife of Uriah. David didn't even pray for himself. He basically just asked Nathan to pray for him. I can't imagine the guilt he must have had, the pain he must have had, everything God had done for him. He was a shepherd boy, and God chose him king of Israel. He stood before Goliath, and God was there with him. He you know, ran from Saul, and the fact is that, that God protected him, and God showed him mercy. He had a friend like Jonathan. He was a man after his own heart. If he wanted more than what he had, God would have gladly given it to him, and this is how he repaid his God. I mean, how do you console somebody like that? If it was you, what would you do? I mean, would you just abandon God? Or how many times would you ask God to forgive you? And when you did ask him to forgive you, what attribute of his would you appeal to? His long-suffering, his love, or his mercy? Mercy. God, have mercy on me. We see a glimpse of that in Psalm 51, where David is crying out, And it tells us in the very beginning of Psalm 51 that it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And he appeals to mercy, mercy. I'm overwhelmed by your mercy. Psalm 51, I'm just going to read the first four verses. It says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness based upon the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, my rebellion. Wash me, not just on the surface, but thoroughly from my iniquity, my twisted, crooked way, and cleanse me from my sin. I recognize my transgressions. I recognize my iniquity and I recognize my sin. And I also understand that I just didn't sin against Uriah or against the people or against Bathsheba, but I sinned against you. For I acknowledge my transgression, my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Can't you imagine? Always there. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. I am willing to lay myself down at your judgment because of what I have done. I was trying to wrap my mind around what that must have felt like to be that guilty, to be that broken because of your guilt. I mean, because of your sin. I mean, what, what would you do? What What must it have been like for David when he cried out, maybe continually, tears just anguishing, have mercy upon me, O God. That's Old Testament. How about New Testament? We've got this man that has a couple sons. A good son and a not-so-good son. And the not-so-good son says, you know what? I don't want to live under your authority anymore, Dad. I want you to give me half of what is mine when you die. 
In other words, I want you to be as if you're dead now and split the inheritance, give it to me because I don't want to be here on the farm with you. I don't want to work with my brother. I don't want what you planned for me. I don't want any of that. I'm going to go make my own way in the world out there, so do it. Ridiculous financial decision the father made, yet he did it anyway. Divided up his wealth, gave it to his son. The son went out there and spent it on everything you can imagine. Had all these friends, had all the parties he went to. He had all the high life in New York, spent a bunch of time in Vegas, maybe out in California. You know what it's like. And all of a sudden, his funds began to diminish. And when his funds finally diminished, he had nothing. And all his friends abandoned him. No one cared about him. He's rejected his family. He's hurt his dad as bad as any son could hurt a father. He uh, basically stole from his brother and, uh, and now has nothing. Nothing. So he gets to the point where I, I just I need to just barely survive. So he takes the lowest possible job he could at that time. He was feeding a man's swine. And he's looking at the slop of food they give to the swine. And he says, you know, even the servants, not sons, but the servants in my father's house are fed better than I'm being fed. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to confess to him that my sin is so great. And, and I don't believe that you're going to have mercy on me, that I'm not even worthy to be your son anymore. Just please hire me to be like one of your slaves because it's a better lot than I am now. And so he did, and you know the story. When he was far away off, he began rehearsing what he was going to say. Father, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore, be part of your house anymore. Please just make me like one of your slaves. And as he headed towards home... I don't know how the father recognized him, but the father recognized maybe the gate of his walk or maybe it was just something the Lord told him. He recognized him coming. And rather than sit back smug and giving him the told you so, he ran to where his son was, ran and embraced him and hugged him. And the son then said, went through his spiel, Father, I'm not worried. No, stop, stop. You're not only forgiven, but you're restored. I'm going to slaughter the fatted calf, put a ring on your finger. My son, who was once dead, has now come home. Throw a party. And then there's all that dialogue about the older brother and the lesson Jesus wanted to teach. But that night, when the party was over and the son was living back in his own room, restored as a son, he's all alone, and he prayed, what do you think he thanked the Lord for? His mercy, the mercy that was shown me, mercy. God, I, I never would have done that to anybody else. And look at what you've done. You've given me mercy. So I was thinking about that, and I was looking at a particular psalm, and I want to spend our rest of our time together looking at Psalm 136 that deals specifically with God's mercy. It's a strange psalm. But as usual, the Lord has some hidden gems in here that will absolutely amaze us. 26 verses. We don't know who wrote the psalm. We really don't know much about it. It's kind of divided up into these sections. It's almost like a, from the time the psalm was written, it's almost looking back at the history of Israel and seeing how merciful and loving God was. The first three verses are just praises for who God is, 
trifold praise for our triune God. Verses four through nine, praise God as the creator. They go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 1-1, and continue through the creation account. When we get to verses 10 through 15, they talk about how God delivered them from, his, from, uh, from Egypt and bore them on eagle's wings and fulfilled his promise and brought them out. Then he showed mercy from verse 16 through 22 in the wilderness, how he took care of them and how he fed them and how they were able to defeat their enemies all the way up into the entrance into the promised land. 23 and 24 talk about the current mercy that God is showing on his people. And the last two verses talk about his never ending wonderful providence he gives for all. And it's like a statement and then a phrase, a statement and then a phrase. One thing we do know about this is this is the psalm that was sung by the people when Solomon dedicated the temple. Matter of fact, if you would took, turn to uh, 2 Chronicles, I want to show this to you. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Chapter 6 talks about this long prayer that Solomon has as he gets ready to uh, dedicate the temple. They're trying to install the virtues on God that make him who he is. So, chapter 7, verse 1 says this is 2 Chronicles. When Solomon had finished praying, all of a sudden, God responded the way he does, and fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What must it have been like to be there and see that? There's the temple. You're maybe 100 people deep from the crowd. You're not up front. All of a sudden, fire comes down, consumes the burnt offering, and the glory of the Lord Whatever that means, the Shekinah glory of God that was on Mount Sinai comes down and consummates the relationship they have with this temple and fills the temple. And the power of God and the glory of God and the majesticness of God was so great, it says in verse 2, that the priest could not enter the house of God because the glory of the Lord was filled in the Lord's house his holiness. And then us being in the crowd, when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement. This is not in our home, on our carpet, or at our bed where it's really comfortable. We're outside and we bowed our faces to the ground on the pavement and worship and praise the Lord saying, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. That phrase, his mercy endures forever, is, is mentioned 26 times in Psalm 136. When is the last time you've ever felt the presence of God, even alone, so great that it brought you to your knees and you laid your face on the ground here on the pavement, the blacktop, if you want to look at it that way, in front of everybody, and just uttered, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls. Can you imagine? 
22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. I can't imagine how long that took. I can't imagine all the sounds and everything that was going on. So the king and all the people dedicated the house to the Lord, and the priests attended their services. The Levites also with instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for the praise of the Lord, saying, for, here we go again, his mercy endures forever. Whenever David offered praise by the ministry, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. This crescendo of how good God is, how amazing God is, how, how wonderful he is. His mercy endures forever. So go back, if you would, to um, Psalm 136. Just want you to watch how this flows. It's almost like one of those really boring, responsive readings we used to do in Baptist churches when I was a kid. Do you remember that? You had the hymn book. We had hymn books back then. And the very back of the hymn books were these responsive readings. They were supposed to allow us to you know, proclaim God's goodness together. And what happens is, you know, the pastor would read the part like in bold and we would read the part afterwards and the pastor would do everything he could to try to make it sound theatrical and we would drone on like we just want to hurry up and get done with this thing because nobody likes to talk at church anymore. Kind of like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And if this was a responsive reading, and by the way, this was one, the people would say, for his mercy endures forever. You remember that? Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. Oh, his mercy endures forever. How many more of these we have to do? We don't like to talk. We don't like to bow our face on the pavement. We don't like to do anything like that. Can't we just sit and learn and take notes and go home? can't imagine what, uh, what this must be like. In every one of these verses, you have a statement, and then you have his mercy endures forever. You have the first three about the triune God. Then you've got, of course, creation. Verse four, to him alone does great wonders. Verse five, to, to him by whom wisdom made the heavens. Verse six, to him who laid out the earth above the waters. Verse seven, to him who made the great light. Verse 8, the light to rule, the sun to rule the day. 9, the moon and stars to rule the night. And every time an attribute or an event or a creation or something God does is mentioned, the people, you and I, just cry out the most blessed attribute of God, his mercy. His mercy endures forever. So look in your Bible. And you'll see it in the last part of, oh, verse, let's say the first three verses. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Do you see anything strange about that statement? How about this? Does that help? Notice in your Bible that the word endures is italicized. Do you know why? Whenever you see something in your Bible that's italicized, it means it's not in the original text. It means that it's something the translators have added to make more sense, to be a complete sentence, 
you, you have the phrase in there, and we have to stick an English word in there to either clarify it or make it a complete sentence or just make it flow better. I mean, it doesn't mean it's not right. It just means it's not there. And so you see that all the way through here. As a matter of fact, if you go back to 2 Chronicles, you'll also see where it says, His mercy endures forever. Endures is added. And in the context of the Hebrew, endures fits, but it's not in the text. So we assume it's like a sentence. His mercy endures forever, which is a great attribute of God. It shows his long suffering. It shows his patience. It shows his continual forgiveness. And it shows his mercy. Mercy isn't something you offer once and then judgment later on. Sorry, dude, I gave you two chances. First time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. You're out of here. It says mercy endures forever. But... That's not exactly what it says. What it says is his mercy forever. For his mercy forever. It's almost like a question and an answer. There's an attribute about God. I remember when God brought us out on eagle's wings and he conquered Og of Bashan and Sihon and he opened up, he parted the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies were drowned. Do you remember all of that? Yes, yes. I have a question about that. I know what God did in the past. I know about his mercy back then. But does he still have mercy today? Is he still show me mercy in the middle of my sin? And how long does his mercy last? Does it last forever? Or does it last like my mercy does, right? I've had enough, I'm tired of it, you're out of here. No, it lasts forever. Question and answer. Question, his mercy? How long will his mercy last? How is his mercy tied up in this? His mercy, God endures his mercy forever. His mercy in the English, question mark, is the answer forever. It could be read this way. And as I'm looking at this, rather than just droning through it, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. What's so good about him? What's the best attribute of God? His love, his long-suffering, his grace, oh, his mercy. Because he took a sinner like me, a prodigal son. He took someone like David, you know, an adulterer, and he, he presented mercy. He forgave our sins. As a matter of fact, he did not let me experience what I should have experienced, but instead took that judgment and placed it on his son. And when you take the love and the grace and the long-suffering of God and you funnel it all down, how it affects us as people, it affects us in his mercy. And so it's more, I was reading, it's more, it can be more than just his mercy endures forever. Because every time we've got some attribute of God, the question is always, I know what he was like then. Does he still have mercy for us now? And if so, for how long? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Is he always good? His, uh, his mercy? Oh, yeah, forever. Forever. Settled and forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, 
the small gods, the things that I have made God in my own life. Is his mercy even greater than that? Ah, forever, forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, one greater than anything. His mercy? Ah, you keep asking. The answer is the same, forever, forever. Creation. To him who alone does great wonders, is his mercy still do those wonders today? Uh, his mercy? I'm asking questions about his mercy forever. To him whom by wisdom made the heavens forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, who made the lights, the sun, the moon. His mercy Back then, his mercy today, his mercy for them, his mercy for me, forever, forever, forever. Verse 10 talks about them leaving Egypt. To him who struck Egypt, Egypt in their firstborn. Wow. And he did that for us, for his people. His mercy, never ending, forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy transcends your sin forever. His mercy transcends your faithfulness forever. Like it says in Romans, what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? There's a whole list of everything imaginable from the cosmic realm to the, to the fleshly realm to the demonic realm. And the answer is nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, who was given to us by grace because of God's mercy. Mercy forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, his mercy forever and brought out Israel from among them with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, to him who led the people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and slew famous kings, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, and gave their lands as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. He has done all of that, and you question his mercy? It's forever, forever. And I just read to you the skimming account of the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua, where God took unruly, ungrateful, irritating people and showed his mercy on them forever. Verse 23, God, who remembered us in our lowly state. Ah, your mercy, God, it lasts forever. God, who rescued us from our enemies, is rescuing us from our enemies, will rescue us from our enemies. Why? His mercy endures forever. His mercy lasts forever. His mercy is forever. Question, like a little kid looking up at his dad, his mercy? And the father looking down, forever. Settled, forever. Question mark, exclamation point. To God, who gives food to all flesh, who takes care of our daily needs, 
who cares for us as, as much as he cares for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, who has the very hairs on our head numbered, even in your sin, still mercy? Forever. Verse 26, oh, give thanks to the God of heaven for his mercy endures forever. Forever. Now, this is just a, another way to read this. It means his mercy endures forever. It's kind of set up in the Hebrew like a question and answer. But it, it's almost, for me, it's almost more definitive. I mean, I, I get this picture of a father with his young children around him. And the children see all this stuff going on. The father's older and wiser, and they're looking to the father for protection. The father's been there before, and as long as my father's with me, I'm okay. And so they look up to the father, and they just ask a question. They see all the chaos. Maybe stuff like Justice was talking about today. Uh, in all of this, um, is God going to take care of us? I mean, his mercy in all of this? And the father looks down with confidence and just looks at his son and goes, ah, forever, forever, it's done, forever. Ah, I feel better. I feel secure. I feel loved. I feel protected because his mercy endures forever. His mercy, forever. So what, what I did as I was studying this, is something I would like you to do for the next five minutes or so, 10 minutes or so. Not gonna make you share anything. You don't have to worry about being called out or anything like that. But what this Psalm does is lay out for us, at least to this point, all the things God did to help his children. He created the universe. He gave us the sun and the moon. He provides for all our food. He protects us from our enemies. He, he, he took e uh, Israel out of Egypt and just fed them with manna and quail during the 40 years when there were these huge kings like Russia and China and you're a country like Papua New Guinea. They could, they could just swarm it and destroy you like Og and Sihon. No, God took care of all of that and gave you their land. Why would he do that? Because his mercy endures forever. His mercy forever. When you came upon this impassable obstacle, you've got Pharaoh breathing down your neck. And of course, there's this fire separating from you and Pharaoh. But nevertheless, in front of you is the Red Sea. You have no boats. You're just a bunch of slaves. And he parts the Red Sea. And you go on dry land to the other side. And then Moses holds up his staff. And all your fears and all your insecurities and everything that kept you up at night is washed away. And the broken pieces of your enemy wash up on the shore. Remember? Why would God do that to a bunch of rebellious people who want to go back to Egypt? Because his mercy, ah, forever forever. Even on ungrateful people, forever. How are we going to feed ourselves? What are we going to do about our enemies? And it talks about all of that. And at the very end of every one of those fears, his mercy, child asks the father, the father says, forever. His mercy endures 
forever, forever. I sat down when I was studying this, and I started listing the things that God had done in my life, things that I thought it was over. Um, there there were, have been some times in my life, some situations that came up where I could not see how I was going to make it the next day. I am the husband. I'm the father at that time of three kids. Everybody's looking to me for wisdom, and you got this dad. I didn't have it at all. I, I just put on a good face. I, I didn't have it at all. And I look back on it now, and uh, his mercy, forever, forever, forever. No matter what happens, he's there. Never lets go of us. No one can pluck us out of his hands because his mercy endures forever. His mercy, forever. I started writing those things down. And every time I would write those down, I'd have the opportunity to praise him. Gosh, you showed your mercy and your power and your grace. And such a profound, I never saw it. I didn't think it'd work out that way, but it did. Thank you, Lord. And the next one, thank you, Lord. And then pretty soon in our own life, we got this odyssey where we're seeing God's manifold wisdom and power in our lives, displaying his mercy and grace to us when we thought it was over, yet we're still here. And all it does is build your faith. I want to encourage you when you go home to do that. Sit down with the Lord, take some time, write those things down and praise him for that. But until that happens, I want us to take about five minutes or so and I want you to just close your eyes and think about some of the things God has done for you. That when it's over and you look back on it, the only thing you can say is it's, it, it's God's mercy. It had to have been just God's mercy. And how much uh, mercy is that? Uh, it's forever, forever. You remember, I hate to keep bringing it up, that uh, Facing the Giants, my favorite movie, moves me spiritually every time I see it. When the football game's over, coach walks around, he asks his players, hey, you know what, uh, you're a 145-pound field goal kicker and you kicked a 50-yard field goal and won the game. I mean, what's impossible with you? Nothing, coach. And look at here, Brock, you held this stone wall and kept them from scoring on the two-yard line. Tell me what's impossible, Brock. Nothing, coach. Nothing, coach. Steve, thought it was over and yet I intervened in a supernatural way. Tell me, tell me how long my mercy lasts. Forever, dead. Forever, God, forever, Father. So let me pray for us. And if you would, just take a few minutes and worship him by remembering some of the times that he has shown his mercy to you and thank him for what he's done. Amen? Let me pray.